0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and welcome to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. We're going to start off this season of the podcast by continuing our collaboration with the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, otherwise known as APAF. The theme of the festival this year is Cooperate, Co-design and Coexist. And in this episode, we're focusing on the word cooperate and how architects can work well with their client, project team, and even the government to create something truly extraordinary. Our guests in this episode are Tracy Skovronik and Steve Phillips from Purcell Architecture, with offices based across Australia, the UK and Hong Kong, who worked with Herzog & de Miron, Rocco Architects and the Hong Kong government to revitalise the heritage precinct called Daikun Centre. Let's jump in. All right. Thank you so much, Tracy Scovronick and Steve Phillips from Purcell Architecture for joining the Hearing Architecture Podcast. How are you both going?
1: Very well. Very well. Yourself, Daniel?
0: Yeah, I'm going okay today. It's uh, pretty bright and sunny out there, so it's uh, not too great to be inside. But it's better than when it's you know horrible and raining outside. So I'm happy that we're all we're all going well. So we're having you on the podcast today to talk about cooperative design, cooperating with other architects, cooperating in big teams to create a result that might not be able to be achieved by just one group alone. And the example project that we're going to be talking about today is a whopper. It's a great project in Hong Kong, the Tai Kun Center. So before we get started into, into some of those details there, do you want to give our audience a little summary of the project? and where it took place and the, the people who were involved. Okay, Daigun, full title, Daigun Centre
2: for Heritage and Arts is, is based in Hong Kong. The project is the revitalization of the former Central Police Station compound, which was a decommissioned site in the heart of central Hong Kong. The project was an international collaboration between a, a number of architects, including Purcell. Herzog de Meuron, and Rocco Design Architects. The project was funded by a joint venture between the Hong Kong Jockey Club and the Hong Kong government. It was an iconic project here uh, in terms of new design in a heritage context.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot built into this project that makes it such a high-profile project for for everyone who was involved. So in terms of the collaboration there with the multiple stakeholders, did you want to take us through what Purcell's involvement was and how things were arranged between the architect, the government, and the stakeholders?
1: So from our side, Purcell first became involved with regard to the conservation management plan for the site so that was published in 2008 and provided really the basis for the understanding what was the significant about the central police station compound and why and what the opportunities for development were this sort of guiding document provided all stakeholders government the public public and private institutions, the Hong Kong Jockey Club and its entire project team with a structure and framework in which to operate and to really articulate the thinking to move the project forward. In terms of the, I guess, the the collaboration, a proposal had already been pursued for the site, which was fair to say commercially driven. This obviously met with a good deal of criticism and was subsequently abandoned. But in 2007, the conservation management plan, the Hong Kong Jockey Club realized that was needed and it determined essentially how the, the team would, would really move forward.
0: So Purcell was quite a large architecture firm. Was this based on some work that Purcell had previously done in Hong Kong or was this the first type of project where Purcell was working on, on, a, on a project of this type?
1: I guess projects of this nature is something that Purcell do become involved. So large, complex sites, both within the UK and and further afield. It was our sort of, I guess, first venture into Hong Kong and the reason that we established a studio there and continue to practice as an architectural practice within Hong Kong.
2: Yeah, I think that the story goes in terms of our involvement was one of our senior partners at the time, had been lecturing on the conservation course at the Hong Kong University. And I think this was heard about by somebody at the Jockey Club. And they approached us just before Christmas 2007. And I think our partner was the very first to respond. He'd almost responded with a proposal before New Year. And I think that enthusiasm was something that the, the client really appreciated. And I think the, the rest is history. So having, having accepted a fee proposal at the end of um, 07, the, the team began to be established back in the UK. Two or three individuals initially came over to the legwork of the conservation management plan, so really the archival research. So a team were based here uh, in terms of uh, recording the buildings as well as um, using the different sort of government repositories in terms of obtaining the sort of the background and the long history dating back, you know, some 170 years. So having sort of collated that, the team went back to the UK to begin preparing the plan. And then following that, I think the CMP was published in um, mid-2008 after a period of, of review and digest, I suppose, by the client. We were then commissioned as the conservation architect to sort of oversee from, you know, concept through to construction stage. So once that was secured, uh, I think that was really the catalyst for saying, you know, well, this is a fantastic opportunity for Purcell. You know, we we really need a, a local presence. So we began to, you know, explore the opportunity to put a small team out here. And I think that sort
0: of really stemmed from about 2008. Fantastic. And so as the conservation architect, when you put together this, this conservation management plan, what did you bring back in that might have either been left out or just not picked up in that first more commercially driven proposal? I think
2: the real value that Purcell brought to this particular stage of the project was the need to be maybe a little more sort of sensitive in the design response and potentially something that was a little more contextual to the scale of the site. Hong Kong is very dense, it's very high-rise, but actually the site, you know, was a significant departure from that. You know, it's it's a cluster of of low-rise, somewhat domestic institutional buildings that are more typical across other colonial locations. And I think our research and understanding for how the site worked I think was also key to sort of driving that response, so we really identified that the two large open spaces, the parade ground, which was predominantly used by the police force, and then the prison yard obviously by the by the prisoners, you know that those two key large open spaces were pretty unique in what was a really dense part of the city, so we were really keen to. Drive the redevelopment plan to sort of keep those spaces as sort of quite sacrosanct and, you know, and, and avoid the commercial pressures to build on those. So, therefore, we were looking at opportunities for identifying buildings of maybe lesser value, not so historically significant, maybe less architectural, social value to those. So, we identified a couple of locations where we could potentially demolish a couple of buildings. And therefore, free up effectively real estate to redevelop in those positions.
1: And also, everything from you know the strategic level through to the the detail was sort of covered off within that sort of series of policies and and frameworks, that as Steve said, kind of recommended you know removal of certain buildings and structures to create those potential opportunities, but also, you know, some of the, the more sensitive areas of, of retention that sort of helped to kind of establish that sort of site development into the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, in your role as as these conservation architects, how did you handle the the intervention of new elements onto this site and making sure that they, I guess, we're having a, a good conversation with what was heritage listed and existing on, on this amazing site? One of our key
2: Challenges was the fact that the site was, you know, impenetrable. You know, it was a fortress. You know, it was largely disconnected, as one would expect from you know, being a prison. And therefore, for it to really be successful, it was it was quite early in the design process where, you know, solutions were needed to re-embed this type of site into, you know, the urban fabric. And therefore opportunities were sought to connect at different portions of the site to the street network potential for new openings to be formed to create those connections. You know, and then probably the most successful one of those was the connection from the mid level escalators, which in itself, is you know a, quite an important and iconic feature within Hong Kong so the decision to connect to that bridge and and form a connection into the site was you know has been justified many times over by the fact that it's become Almost the, the most popular and frequented way into the site.
0: Well, that's yeah, that's got to be such a huge, a huge problem to overcome. Where you had an existing building where it's about trying to disconnect people and and not make people connect, and you have been tasked with making sure that this building can have really great transitions and right across the site and visibility as well. So that must have been a huge challenge to overcome.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think having tackled first getting people into the site as well as then getting people back out of the site, you know, in terms of thinking about health and safety. It was then looking at the plan with respect to how prison and the police and the judiciary sort of side operated. So as you can imagine, there was quite a lot of separation between the different uses of the site as it was constructed. So, you know, over many years of evolution, different forms of security were added you know, and we needed to really sort of understand that evolution to be able to sort of appropriately unpick it. So having having understood how these different spaces, you know, were formed, were separated, what we needed to do is look at opportunities for re-establishing or creating new connections between these spaces and, and the different uses and the different types of buildings. So What was quite critical was to look at an opportunity to connect the lower portion of the site with the upper portion of the site, which also had challenges with respect to topography, you know, and significant sort of changes in level. So working alongside the design architect, there was a really bold decision to create a single sort of passageway That went through three heritage buildings alone to connect these upper and lower levels, you know, and that was probably one of the most boldest moves, I think, on the project. And at the time was probably one of the most boldest moves in heritage conservation in the city, you know, and and trying to obtain approval and convince, you know, the government bodies that you know this was the right thing
0: to do yeah i mean it does sound like a a huge challenge and i guess you know in the process of working together with two other architecture firms one over in europe and then another architecture firm locally how did you find working together as three architecture firms when you were tackling these big challenges of conservation and also creating something new
1: I think sort of whilst the concept of international architects collaborating with local executive architects is, is obviously a long-established practice, I think bringing in three architects, particularly a conservation architect, was unique at the time in Hong Kong, and particularly since conservation in Hong Kong was very much in its infancy, but really sort of when the rubber hit the road and the, you know the the teams had sort of those boots on the ground kind of to During the design development and construction phase, it really did sort of work for a more collaborative relationship with all parties of the project team and also the client team to be having those, I guess, robust discussions, but also with the same forward outcome really as a team to kind of, you know, really sort of put this site back on the map in in Hong Kong and, and integrate it into the city.
0: Yeah, and how did you work together to visualise that so that you could all make sure that everyone's proposals and ideas were getting shown and recognised and, and so that you knew you were all pointing in the same direction?
2: I think in terms of the the collaboration working with the three architects, I think as Tracy mentioned earlier, there, there were boots on the ground in Hong Kong, so both Purcell were based here as, as well as Herzog and Demuron. And actually for us at the time when we first started working here, we actually were based in in Rocco's office. So, you know, we, we really had a very close relationship with them. And I think in terms of then the design development, we really advocate uh, an iterative design process. So we work very closely with both the, the Herzog team in Hong Kong as well as the team back in Basel. Looking at all the design proposals with respect of You know, an overall site master plan, as well as looking at the design per sort of compliance with the conservation management plan and the policies and and the framework that we'd spent, you know, the previous sort of year developing.
0: Wow. I mean, it's just, it sounds like because of all of the complexity, the the amount that you all had to research and understand the site must have been phenomenal to be able to jump from one space to the next and all be able to to stay on the same page, which is just so, so impressive.
1: It was very much a a shared journey.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I think the project always had a vision statement. And I think the vision statement was to attain, you know, UNESCO recognition. And I think starting off on, on that foot, you know, and sort of setting that foundation that achieving a UNESCO award status, you know, there's almost a, a sort of a methodology that you need to sort of go through. And the framework of that, I think, as, as Tracy mentioned, is really about research and understanding. You know, if if you put that sort of legwork in to start with, understanding the site, you know, it makes it a lot easier to make the decisions going forward, and, and you feel that you're able to make really informed decisions because you really do understand and, and have that background knowledge.
1: Certainly, in terms of the technical quality of the restoration work, you know, in terms of standards setting on an international level, and, you know, really ensuring that sort of authenticity and integrity of, of the historic fabric with those sort of new innovations and interventions, I think, sort of was a great outcome really of the project
0: absolutely and it sounds like because you had a a really defined goal of, of trying to achieve unesco listing that then you would have to work quite closely with the government body who handles heritage in in hong kong what was that relationship like and how easy was it to coordinate with a heritage government body
2: I mean, for us, it was a new venture. You know, it was our first project in Hong Kong. We didn't know the government. We hadn't worked with the government. So in some ways, you know, that was quite a a daunting sort of proposition. But I think part of that journey was made easier by the local architect. You know, we'd obviously managed to develop a very quick rapport with them, you know, and, and they were able to sort of work in a and support us through that sort of statutory journey in terms of working directly with the heritage body the antiquities and monuments office as it's called here i think with our experience from the uk in terms of working with you know english heritage historic england and and you know and various different local sort of conservation bodies i think we sought to bring that experience to hong kong With Hong Kong being, as we've said earlier, you know, heritage conservation was was in its infancy here. You know, we were able to sort of bring a lot of, you know, the UK's more sort of tried and tested approach to here. And I think one of the things that we sought to bring to the table was more of a sort of a risk-based analysis of things. Hong Kong only, you know, has a significant and quite stringent building code. Which is to be expected given the nature of the construction here. So we were faced with a proposition that we needed to design and integrate, you know, modern building codes into low rise buildings, adopting a code that's predominantly developed for, you know, multi story design. So, you know, to coin one example, you know, we were, we were having to integrate, you know, modern fire services into a two story building you know, accommodating a design that's normally for, say, a 100-story building.
0: I guess that's one one of the huge tasks that any team working on a heritage building has to look into is if you're going to integrate or even reactivate an older building, You can't sort of stop it from leaking. You also have to make sure that the steps are usable and people can traverse the site in wheelchairs and and all of these sorts of things. How how did you go, I guess, uh, either integrating or updating parts of the building to make sure that it could be used to these modern standards just like the fire escapes you were mentioning?
1: I think that's where sort of as a team, innovation was key and certainly as a collaboration of, of the project team and three architects. The sort of the innovative approach to those and, and ways that, you know, not only we could meet the building code, but also ensure and protect and retain the heritage values of the site was critical. But something that as a collaboration, we were all sort of, I guess, on the same page that wasn't necessarily going to be a textbook response to some of the the challenges that were presented. So, you know, it was I guess, through that regular interface with the architectural team, but also the statutory bodies as well that enabled a a shared understanding and approach to kind of develop some of those interventions and ensuring that the site is accessible and also the other aspects in terms of fire and servicing was maintained.
2: Yeah, I think one of the key things we definitely had to look at was this apparent sort of conflict between. Heritage significance and the need to upgrade the buildings to modern standards. The government or the heritage body were particularly keen or the, or the default answer was, you know, we need to preserve as much as possible, which was naturally potentially, you know, which was naturally in conflict with needing to integrate a whole load of new amenities from lifts, from toilets, building services as well as accommodating, you know, a number of updates to the space to just simply be able to accommodate, you know, the change in use. You know, we are going from offices to retail to F&B, which, you know, naturally needs quite a lot of infrastructure to facilitate, you know, installing sort of commercial-grade kitchens and the like. So I think one of the key decisions was to undertake like a building feasibility study So it was to look at the space planning of the buildings as existing versus the historical significance of of different spaces. So we looked for opportunities to potentially position the bulk of the major interventions that particularly took up space like toilets into areas of, of lesser significance.
0: Yeah, I mean, because there's, there's so much involved in this site. How did you decide on what was going to be included or restored and, and the mix of use in all of those amenities? Again, I think for this one, it's
2: back to the, the the project vision. I think that this area of central sort of had identified that there was a bit of an absence of sort of arts and, and culture at the time. So I think it had been identified that there was a need for a like a modern art gallery, museum, as well as, you know, a sort of an auditorium and, and theatre space. So they really set the foundation for what the new building use needed to be. But in terms of really the sort of the heritage spaces, so we we were left with 16 historic buildings that were predominantly either residential before, you know, barrack accommodation, superintendents' houses, as well as the police station and, and a number of offices, and then into the into the magistracy and and courtrooms, as well as then up in the upper level of the site, you had a number of redundant cell blocks of various different designs. So within the original building plan, we we needed to look at what type of uses would fit those type of spaces without needing to do a wholesale adaptation. You know, the last thing that we were that we wanted to consider was to almost sort of go in and sort of gut the buildings and, and consider, you know, sort of facade retention. So we needed to sort of work within the framework of the building as it was and what type of uses would fit within those spaces or what was the floor loading capacity of the buildings and, you know, what type of new uses would fit with what we had. So working with a commercial agent at the time, we were looking at opportunities for you know what type of use would work in different buildings that would obtain a sufficient level of sort of foot traffic through the site. So you know thinking about you know strategic positioning of particular type of uses that you know that would help draw people into the site.
0: Yeah, well, I mean that sounds that sounds fantastic that you know the, the cons- conservation architect role was so important on this project. How did you identify, you know, the different ways that you could add value? You sort of mentioned how, you know, it's really good to find, you know, what was going to make the site fire after you're finished. How did you, you know, try to figure out what different parties could bring to the site?
1: I guess part of it was through recognising where individuals' expertise lay. So, it was sort of that responsibilities matrix and what that looked like in kind of the ability to offer that broader perspective to some of the key challenges but also the solutions needed to challenge the norm really but also using key assessments in terms of risk to a good effect really
0: yep so did that did the responsibility matrix involve the project team including the architects and the client group I guess and the and also the contractors as well
1: Did continue sort of through the design development phase and and into the construction phase, just really due to, I guess, the procurement and the way the project evolved through that sort of earlier and later?
2: Yeah, in terms of um, continuing on into the construction stage, I think it's fair to say that Hong Kong had never done a project of this kind of nature. The scale of the, the conservation work was unprecedented, you know, there's no no other site really quite like it. And then, in terms of trying to then introduce to large scale new developments within heritage context, well, again, no one had really tackled that prospect before. So, one of the ways that this was set up was it was a management construction contract. There was a a management contractor who then had the inevitable task of managing. I think it was forty plus works packages. So, you know, in the same way or in the same vein that the team itself needed a matrix to sort of outline our own responsibility, we then had this challenge of how do you demarcate between one works contractor's, you know, scope versus another. So again, working with the management contractor, you know, we had to help try and identify scope sort of demarcation on Every individual building, almost down to every individual element. So, for example, you may have had two or three different contractors looking after, say, a balcony. So, we had, you know, we had a joinery contractor looking after the handrail. We then had a metalwork contractor looking after the railings. So, it became quite a complex puzzle to manage who did what. And what was the split between them and then how we then manage that through the construction stage in terms of then, say, quality control as well. So, you know, you, you had the prospect of one contractor doing something in very close proximity to another and then, you know, the risk of them potentially disturbing somebody else's work and then the risk for sort of dispute. So, you know, we had a we had a quite a tough challenge in terms of managing that separation and in terms of you know how to sort of sequence work to potentially you know avoid conflict between contractors
1: i think also that was the benefit of being site based during the construction phase the sort of the the quality control as steve mentioned but also you know the regular interface between the trade packages the main contractor and obviously the architects could continue live And deal with problems or interface design development as they arose really through the construction phase, which, you know, is great sort of opportunity for us as a practice to have been involved with that in such close proximity on site every day, you know, dealing with those problems as they arose.
0: Yeah, and it seems like because of the complexity in the in the job and the amazing results that you had from working with different architects together, you've also forged a great relationship with the other t- architects that you worked with. And have you have you had ongoing work with uh, the Hong Kong-based architecture firm uh, Rocco?
1: Very much so. We do continue to collaborate with with Rocco, and we have had opportunities to continue to you know work with with Herzog's as well. So.
2: I think for us coming to Hong Kong, you know, it was a it was a new business venture. Um, You know, we were operating in a completely different culture. So for us, one of the key successes for our business was, you know, was to really develop relationships with the people that you know we we were new to working with. And I think you know having set those you know that that foundation really early, you know, and, and a su- clearly a successful project is is quite telling. That if you work together well on one you know you're more likely to continue those kind of opportunities elsewhere so i think for us you know the project has been a catalyst for continuing to work with people like rocco as well as a a number of the other consulting parties engineers whereby you know we've now had opportunities ourselves as as lead consultant to employ them as our own sub consultant
0: well i mean and the proof is in the pudding isn't it because you Won the RIBA Award for Excellence, and you know, you got the UNESCO listing. So you know, it just sort of shows that you've been able to deliver uh, on such a complex project with a lot of really important stakeholders involved too. So it just shows that you know, that, uh, collaboration seems to be a really great
1: relationship that should be ongoing. Yeah, there's no, I guess, greater testament than you know, winning those awards for ultimately, you know, the profile raising and continued work within the region.
2: Yeah, and I think we're absolutely delighted with the awards that, that we have won. But so is the rest of the team. You know, it's not just recognition from the architectural profession, you know, the engineering profession in particular, you know, the, the structural side have been well recognized in terms of success, as well as the, the contractor, you know, in terms of obtaining the quality building award. So, for you know, it's been real testament that almost all the consulting disciplines have attained, you know, recognition within their sort of respective fields.
1: I guess stemming from that is really the legacy of this imparting the skills uh, to local contractors. I think that's what I'm trying to say, Steve. There's probably a piece in there to talk around. You know, that's a, a big part of the legacy of the project was, the craft and management skills among the local contractors as well as the consultant team?
2: Yeah, I think we weren't starting from ground zero, I think, but uh, I think it's fair to say that at the commencement of the work on site in around 2012, there was a bit of a skills gap in the market for a number of the um, required conservation works, um, particularly the masonry and the plaster and, and sort of decorative moulding work. So, having sort of identified a skills gap, one of the key decisions was to bring in an international contractor. But I think, as sort of Tracy's touched on, they brought a you know a fantastic and sort of proactive approach to conservation here, you know, and effectively sort of set up a framework for training, you know, local construction workers in particular conservation practices. You know, and the legacy of the project now is that, you know, there's, you know, many more skilled workers in the city to tackle upcoming projects.
0: I think that's such a huge testament to this to this project that where there was a skills gap after having to communicate to trades and essentially get them trained up to execute on this kind of project, they can now continue to use those skills. On not just more of your own projects, but then other projects around Hong Kong, which will make buildings hopefully better and stronger for for years to come. So that's just a you know almost like a social sustainability side of the project that keeps uh, giving back to the community.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there were some two hundred local tradespeople that were employed over the course of the project. So you know the ripple effect of that and that legacy within within Hong Kong is you know something that we're we're incredibly proud of.
0: And with regards to, I guess, talking with tradespeople, communicating with your team, in terms of being a firm that excels with with cooperation, how do you deal with all of the different communication styles that you must use on a project like this to make it work?
2: I mean, the project was long duration and, you know, starting in 2008, finishing in 18. And it's fair to say that communication – techniques you know continue to you know evolve over that sort of decade so whilst we we started out with video conferencing in very much in its sort of infancy you know but by the end of the project we'd sort of transition from that sort of almost remote working into very much a local working
1: I guess there is a piece around this also sort of allowed Purcell to provide some common opportunities for the business across the construction phase, which were opportunities for development in upskilling our own team to be able to work on such a unique project in a a culturally different environment.
2: In terms of managing the construction stage itself, Purcell approached this, I think, in a way that was probably quite methodical, you know, that the site was so large as we said, you know, so many works, packages, you know, dividing up the work per different type of conservation, expertise or materiality. And therefore, we, we took a decision that we needed to create, you know, a series of teams that were devoted to different elements. So we had a team that was, you know, looking after, you know, the external restoration We had a team that was looking after the internal restoration. And then for us, I think in quite an unprecedented move. And I think again, another real added value was that we devoted people really to looking at building services, you know, effectively to be the MEP consultants team on the ground. You know, it was such a challenge to bring these buildings up to modern standards, you know, in terms of environmental condition, you know, indoor comfort levels. And, you know, and these buildings were not really heavily serviced when, when they were conceived. So we had a lot of work to do to try and push through, you know, a centralized mechanical and ventilation scheme. And, you know, as, as we touched on earlier on in the conversation, you know, the potential for risk between introducing all of these and, you know, the balance with maintaining the historical significance. We had so many conversations and site-based setting out to try and position these in the most discrete locations. So yeah, we felt it really important to devote members of our team really to sort of lead the MEP installation you know and i think that's again a a sort of a discipline that we've you know brought to our other projects in hong kong simply because you know many of the other you know heritage structures here you know are suffering from sort of the same challenges that you know we've had the the benefit of now successfully delivering i think probably then just one other point i think during the construction stage you know we did balance our international expertise through a number of the expats that were based here versus the the local expertise you know and you know staff that had been locally trained in you know in the construction disciplines here to establish you know relationships you know we we felt it was beneficial to sort of balance both that sort of international versus local so that the local team really were able to sort of help reinforce particular messages to local craftsmen that naturally didn't speak a lot of English, but I don't feel that it was a major obstacle. I think it's been well managed in terms of, you know, using different people's skill sets to sort of communicate messages.
0: Yeah, definitely. I guess looking back now at this project that you had in your office for for 10 years, you know, which there are a lot of epic projects out there, but not all of them will go for that amount of time. And off the back of the great success of it, is there any one thing that you think led to this project's success? Or is there any one thing that might have made the project not as successful if it hadn't been included in this project that had so many moving parts? That's a good question.
1: (laughs) I guess, Steve, one of the key successes is those open spaces, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well, I I definitely think the protection of the open spaces has been critical to the success of the project. In some camps, it's sort of referred to as a a little bit of a a green oasis, you know, in the dense scrum of of Hong Kong Island, you know, providing the opportunity for outdoor event spaces, which are, you know, quite unique in this part of the city the opportunity to integrate open space into people's sort of daily life. Another opportunity was for maybe the people to sort of come into the maybe more sort of somber prison yard, which, you know, naturally had quite a different feel to the parade ground, which which has tended to be a much more activated space. So the, the, the prison yard, slightly more somber, a really deep-rooted connection to what had sort of happened before there, the sort of the sense of enclosure formed by the sort of the retaining walls. And then, you know, a couple of trees that, you know, again sort of provided in the past, you know, prisoners with a bit of respite from, you know, the south-facing sunlight.
1: Daikun is an immersive and already sort of much-valued cultural place of gathering inspiration and stimulation. With its sort of first anniversary, it had 3.6 million visitors So it really has become a diverse venue for really all walks of life and a place for Hong Kongers to to be reminded of Hong Kong's past through the various sort of education heritage workshops, but also the interpretation programmes and events and performances that, that Steve has just been speaking about.
0: Ah, it's amazing. It's such a such an incredible project with, with so much built into it. Thank you so much for joining me on, on this episode of the Hearing Architecture Project. We're, we're really grateful for your time. And yeah, we can't wait to see what other amazing projects Purcell works on in the future. So thank you so much. And we hope to we get to see you again soon.
1: Thank you, Daniel, for your time.
0: Yeah, thank you, Daniel. This has been a special episode of Hearing Architecture for the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guests in this episode, Tracy Skovernick and Steve Phillips from Purcell Architecture for their contribution to the architecture profession and for sharing how cooperating can produce architecture that connects people across cultures, skill sets and professions. If you're looking for another APAF podcast to listen to, the city of Townsville has just released Tropics Talks, that's tropics with an X. Tropics Talks explores design and the architecture profession in the regional city of Townsville, North Queensland. The podcast talks about local experiences, the careers of practising architects in the north, and favourite local and international projects. Guests include local professionals Zami Rohan, Mark Kennedy, Highwell Jones and John Larazabal to understand more about what drives and inspires creative locals to grow Townsville. So if you'd like to have a listen, you can find Tropics Talks on Spotify. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architectural podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. To learn more about APAF and all the events, presentations and competitions that are running both in person and online, please visit Festival.com. And if you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio and the Asia Pacific Architecture Festival. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the APAF production team was Georgia Burks and Jacinta Reedy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.